the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I mean, simple as that. Now imagine somebody came up to you and said, I don't believe in words. But go, you know the you know the thing. I'm not superstitious, but I'm, I'm a little stitious. You'd think that he was a fool. You wouldn't pull out a dictionary and give him evidence. It ain't about that. And you wouldn't believe him. Oh, good for you! Somebody comes up to you and says, I don't believe in God. We don't think they're a fool. We give them evidence. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know I'm doing it really, really well. And we believe them when the Bible calls them fools. Yo, I had to wait till my dad fell asleep so I could steal his keys. You ready? I was born ready. Alright everyone, welcome to Skeologians, the debut episode of the Theology Podcast here on Cedarskier.com, Cedarskier.com and the Cedarskier Podcast. Go by, you read some obscure passage and then pretend you, you pawn it off as your own, that is your own idea to yes. impress some girls, embarrass my friends. Maybe not for that purpose, but yes, this is Skeologians where we are, as we like to say, trimming, no, not trimming, shredding all of the excess, unnecessary fat in the conversation and most of today's social commentary, giving you the rock-solid truth, and only the rock-solid truth. And uh, we are going to be going through the next several episodes. In fact, we're starting a series today uh, based out of a book called The New Absolutes. So this is a book written in 1996 by Dr. William Watkins, and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. The way we're going to structure these shows is kind of unique. So the plan is is that we're going to kind of bring this book to you uh, like a book on tape. It's always been my dream to be the audio speaker of a book on tape, so now I get to fulfill that, that dream. So I'm going to read a chapter every single show. I'll just read the book right to you, and then the second part of the show will be uh, just some commentary, my thoughts on, on what we read. So I will say that this book doesn't explicitly explain um, worldviews and apologetic methodology, epistemology, how we know things to be true. But knowing some of those uh, about some of those topics, or at least having just a kind of an introductory cursory knowledge of it, makes it a lot more interesting, or made it a lot more interesting for me to read it. But even if you don't, I think you'll still find some of the discussion quite fascinating. I can't believe that this book was written in 1996. Uh, it really kind of it gives so much. It's almost like a pro prophecy book because it's like a, a lot of the stuff we're seeing today in 2020, it's like, wow, I can't believe a lot of that, those things were happening in terms of the moral decline of society and, and why that was, uh, was already happening in 1996 and it was being identified. And that's kind of what this book is about, is that decline of society. So knowing the apologetic methods is going to help you with knowing why some of that really took place. So before we start reading the book, I'm just going to read the back, uh, the cover here. This is William Watkins, The New Absolutes, the subtitle, how they are being imposed on us, how they are eroding our moral landscape. Our society's problems are no longer out there somewhere. They affect our everyday work and family life and how we raise our children. Under the guise of tolerance, relativism, and professed attitude of, quote, live and let live, unquote, new ideas are being advanced of what is true and right for all of us. Family is any grouping of two or more people. Religion should be banned from public life. Any sexual activity between consenting parties is moral. Politically incorrect viewpoints should be silenced. Our culture's consensus of what is true and right is shifting, not because we as a society have become tolerant of all views and lifestyles, but because we are trading what we once believed to be true for new beliefs. Ten beliefs once held to be absolutely true are being trampled by ten new beliefs. 
the personally and socially destructive new absolutes. If the new absolutes are not exposed and opposed, they will lead to cultural collapse. And here's a quote from Dr. Norman Geisler about the book. This book is a penetrating analysis of the hidden absolutes cloaked in the deceptive garb of cultural relativity. It unmasks popular politically correct moral relativism for what it is, a new form of absolutism, an attempt to replace time-honored Judeo-Christian values with the absolutist absolutistic agenda of the cultural and moral left. Its insightful critique, lucid style, and clear expose place it in the forefront of recent cultural apologetics. And so William Watkins, he has engaged in cultural analysis and debate for more than 20 years. He's the founding editor of Liberty Life and Family Journal, an editorial advisor for Culture Wars, and a former director of publications for the American Center for Law and Justice. He's got degrees in philosophy and theology. He's written dozens of articles, essays, and books, and speaks at conferences nationwide. And his books include In Defense of Life and A Handbook on Worldviews. And Watkins does do a really good job of writing a book that's easy to read. It's interesting. Um, His basic premise essentially is that, look, our country was founded on Judeo-Christian values, and and those existed for a long time, uh, and they were sort of the absolutes, the standards, but now they've been replaced by these new absolutes and standards. So he sort of opens up the book by explaining what relativism is uh, and saying how that's really a myth because there's no such thing as relativism and no such thing as neutrality. Everyone has to have an absolute stance um, and ultimate authority and worldview. Uh, And the result of that, the ultimate consequence has been there's been these new absolutes that have taken hold of society. And so he, he opens the book explaining that, and then the next chapters are all about what those new absolutes are. And he talks about the family, religion, um, race, culture, sex, uh, women's rights. Uh, he goes through all those different things and kind of says, that this is what the old absolute was, this is the, what the new one was, and, um, and and goes from there and explains it. So it kind of sets, it up, sets us up good for some shows because each show we can kind of center in on a topic and uh, see uh, what uh, the data that he provides. And that was really interesting about this book is he goes through all this work. He, he does, the bibliography is, is massive. All, all the things he's citing, all the, all the, the stats and the quotes uh, from other people's texts. He, he's very well read and, and presents all this evidence for things. Uh, and some of it's quite shocking. Uh, there were some chapters in this book that were, quite frankly, hard for me to read. Uh, but he, does, he goes to all that work, providing that, and, and yeah, it's in the 90s, but we can kind of show, wow, what's happening today, or how has this even uh, grown? How have some of these trends grown? I, I found that to be very interesting. So again, it's kind of an important book to read, I think, especially given the circumstances, what's going on in society today. Uh, kind of crazy, again, that this book uh, is, is that old, 25 years almost, uh, but obviously extremely relevant. So I think it'll make a good platform for our discussion. And I just want to say thank you for joining us here on the Skiologians, our first ever podcast. We're so glad that you are here to join us, and we hope you enjoy. All right, so here we go. We're, we're jumping right in. Chapter one, this is titled God in Fresno. Here we go. This is Watkins' words. In his best-selling book, The Closing of the American Mind, the University of Chicago professor Alan Boom Bloom claimed, there is one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of. Almost every student entering the university believes, or says he believes, that truth is relative. What Bloom wrote about in 1987, I experienced for the first time in 1976. 
I had returned to college as a student after almost a three-year hiatus. I had changed my major from music to philosophy in hopes of exploring the central issues about reality, truth, and ethics that had begun to haunt me. One course was called Comparative Religions, and it was there I finally encountered a full-bodied relativist, someone who really believed that each person could determine their own truth. He was not the kind of self-avowed relativist who simply uses his position to avoid critical dialogue or excuse his behavior. I had met many who matched that description. Ed was a relativist of a different order. He was striving to carry out his position to one of its logical conclusions. Ed and I were attending the California State University at Fresno, which at the time boasted about 15,000 students. Fresno summers are blistering hot. Daylight temperatures ranging between 100 and 115 degrees are all too common. Aside from air conditioners, the only relief comes after the sun sets, when the temperature can drop as much as 40 degrees. It was on one of these 100-plus degree days around 1 p.m. when I met Ed. Oppressed by the heat, I entered the building that housed the comparative religions class, hoping for some cool air. I stepped inside and dropped onto a desk near the door. No cold air. The air conditioner was on the fritz again. Hot and frustrated, I turned to look out the windows until class began. As a few more students anxiously entered the classroom, I saw the same expectancy of relief fall from their faces as it had from mine. Just as I got about as comfortable as I could, a heavy stomp announced the arrival of Ed. Those old army boots of his pulverized the dirt and sent little puffs of dust into the air. Dirt never had a chance with Ed around. Every time I saw him, he reminded me of a husky mountaineer who must have moonlighted as a junk-hoarding hermit. He wore old faded blue jeans that had been had given out at the knees and a long-sleeved shirt with thin mustard-colored stripes crisscrossing all over it. Before sitting in the desk next to me, he brought his backpack around in front of him, dropped it to the floor, and kicked it into an upright position against the side of his chair. Slumping down, he let nearly half his body slip under his desk. "'Is it ever hot?' he exclaimed." adding an expletive as he wiped his limp, sweat-saturated hair out of his eyes. He pulled his front shirt tail up to his face and dried his beard. "'Yeah, it's not much better in here either,' I said. "'The air conditioner must be out. Uh, your name is?' "'Ed,' he replied, shifting his head toward my desk. "'And yours is Bill, right?' "'Yeah, that's right. So how do you like the class?' This was a favorite question of mine. It usually kept discussions from degenerating into trivial babble about the weather or something else banal. Slumping still farther into his chair, he folded his hands and placed them on his head. I think it's pretty good, he replied. Carol, the prof, makes it interesting. That's more than I can say for some other profs I've had. I know what you mean. I turned around in my seat to look out the windows again. I'm glad Carol isn't hung up on whether something is true or false or right or wrong. I don't go for labels like that. What? I asked, turning back toward Ed. What did you say? I said, I'm glad Carol doesn't label different religions and ideas as true or false. Besides, it doesn't make sense to try anyway, because no one knows what's true and what's false. Without absolutes, everything is relative to what one thinks. That's not true, I thought. What a ridiculous claim to make anyway. In effect, he's claiming that it is absolutely true that no truths are absolute. That's contradictory. It was too hot to hassle with him, so I decided to listen to what he had to say until class began. I was hoping I could just ride him out without getting into a heavy philosophical discussion. Why, for all I know, Ed continued, I could be God. 
I abruptly shifted my full attention to Ed's sweat-beaded face. He can't be serious, I said to myself. Of course not. He's just trying to get my ear, and he succeeded. Sure you could, I said jokingly. Well, why not, he retorted. I'm just as good a candidate as any, he boastfully asserted. I couldn't believe how easily his idea of being God rolled off of his tongue. He had to be kidding. Come on, Ed, you don't really think you're God. That's... Sure I do, he said, sharply raising his voice. What's so strange about that? I leaned back against my chair and looked straight into his pale blue eyes. This guy must be nuts, I thought. The room was quickly filling up with students now, but I didn't pay attention to them. Instead, I focused on Ed and tried to think of what to say. You really do believe you're God, I finally squeezed out. Do you think you're the creator also? I quickly asked. What do you mean? Ed queried. You know, the sun, the planets, the stars, human beings, the natural materials that went into the construction of this building, everything. Did you create it all? I could have, he replied with less than an authoritative tone. I didn't ask whether you could have or not, but whether in fact you did create all that exists. Yes, yes I did, Ed haltingly claimed. You're sure now, I said. Sure I am, I created all things. He appeared a bit smug now. Well then, I began, if you really are God, and you really did create all these things, then why weren't you sure you were God when we first started talking about it? At first, you only said that you could have been God, not that you were. It seems to me, Ed, that if you were intelligent and powerful enough to create and shape the entire universe, you could recall who you were rather quickly, but you couldn't. Ed looked down at the desktop and deliberately folded his arms across his broad chest. Slowly, he turned only his head toward me until we were facing each other again. Then, in a soft yet unyielding tone, he said, I could have created all things, then afterward fallen asleep. You in this class may just be all part of a dream I'm having. I really could be God, but in my dream, I'm just a confused, finite man. I sat silent and motionless for a moment, wrestling for a reply. Finally, I looked up into Ed's solemn face and said, Ed, that's crazy. If you really are God and you're powerful and intelligent enough to have created the entire universe, then don't you think you would know whether you were dreaming? And don't you think you would be powerful and intelligent enough to snap yourself out of your dream at will? Couldn't you do it right now? Unfortunately, I never received an answer from Ed. Before I could respond, the professor began her lecture. From that day on, Ed avoided me. I found that perplexing, even amusing. Why would God fear a mere mortal who supposedly existed only in his dream? While I'm confident Ed's claim to deity was mistaken, I am also sure that Ed was right to carry relativism to that conclusion. If relativism is true, and I will show that it is not, the individual must eventually reign supreme. Self must put itself in the place of deity and become not the discoverer, discoverer of truth, but the determiner of truth. The relativist does not have to claim tremendous power or knowledge as Ed attempted to do, nor proclaim himself the creator of the universe, but he will have to fashion his own world with beliefs of his choosing. Ed came to understand this and finally, though somewhat tenaciously, drew the appropriate conclusion that he was divine. As it turned out, he was unprepared for the role. He couldn't even handle the questions of a fellow student. I will show that Ed is not alone. No relativist is equal to the task of deity, no matter how stripped down a version of God he is. No one adheres to relativism consistently. No one ever could. Out of necessity, all relativists are closet absolutists. This is a radical claim to make in our allegedly relativistic world. Cultural observers tell us that the notion that truth and morality are mere conventions created by groups or individuals supposedly pervades every facet of Western society. We are, 
most pundits claim, believers in the dictum that no truths or moral laws are universally binding. In The New Absolutes, I contend that these pundits are wrong. Not only is relativism false and impossible to embrace, but it is not held in the West nor the world at large. Many people claim to be relativists, but they are not. Cultural commentators are correct concerning the West's cultural crisis. Western society is crumbling. Relativism, however, is not the culprit. The real causes lie elsewhere. One cause, the one I will focus on in part two, is America's growing acceptance of a new set of alleged truths that are being persuaded and sometimes forced to accept as absolutes. References to these absolutes are carefully avoided. Nonetheless, the new truths and the behavior of those who accept and oppose them demonstrate that absolutism is alive and well. I realize many critics will condemn this viewpoint as elitist and intolerant, the two worst sins of our, quote, enlightened, progressive, unquote, age. I readily accept both charges, but as you will see, not in the vein they are easily understood. I certainly believe that some truth claims are true and others false, and that some behaviors are moral and others immoral. I also believe that whatever is true is absolutely true, and that whatever is moral is absolutely moral. I will demonstrate, in fact, that absolutism not only exists but must be true, and that even self-avowed relativists illustrate this reality. On the other hand, I will also argue that much of what passes for a universal truth today is nothing of the kind. The new absolutes and their foundational assumptions are false. Moreover, they are undermining the very building blocks of Western civilization, including basic principles of liberty, the institutions of marriage, and the family, and our understanding of human nature, reason, ethics, and ultimately reality itself. Just a few years after World War II, Richard Weaver, an English professor at the University of Chicago, wrote a profound treatise called Ideas Have Consequences. In it, he stated, Quote, there is ground for declaring that modern man has become a moral idiot, unquote. He went on to show that the disillusion of the West he had witnessed was, quote, the product not of biological or other necessity, but of unintelligent choice, unquote. We have no one or nothing other than ourselves and our choices to blame for it. In Weaver's words, quote, for four centuries, every man has been not only his own priest, but his own professor of ethics. And the consequence is an anarchy which threatens even that minimum consensus of value necessary to the political state. From his standpoint in history, he could tell that modern society was self-destructing. To those who thought he was wrong, he answered, if you seek the momentum to our folly, look about you. He writes, in our own day, we have seen cities obliterated and ancient faiths stricken. We may well ask, in the words of Matthew, whether we are not faced with great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world. We have for many years moved with a brash confidence that man had achieved a position of independence which rendered the ancient restraints needless. Now, in the first half of the 20th century, at the height of modern progress, we behold unprecedented outbreaks of hatred and violence. 
We have seen whole nations desolated by war and turned into penal camps by their conquerors. We find half of mankind looking upon the other half as criminal. Everywhere occur symptoms of mass psychosis. Most portentous of all, there appear diverging bases of value, so that our single planetary globe is mocked by worlds of different understanding. These signs of disintegration arouse fear, and fear leads to desperate unilateral efforts toward survival, which only forward the process. Standing on the threshold of a new century and a new millennium, I think it is accurate to say that moral idiocy has reached new heights in our world, especially in Western civilization. The, quote, diverging basis of value, quote, unquote, Weaver saw appearing 50 years ago have flowered under the banners of relativism, multiculturalism, pluralism, postmodernism, and the new tolerance. What he feared as a foreboding sign of social disintegration, we have embraced as emblems of social progress and maturity. The worlds of different understanding, he believed, would mire us in facts at the expense of knowledge and wisdom are today heralded as signs of our openness to exciting and enriching vistas of intellectual and moral awareness. Where Weaver saw perversity, we see lifestyle differences. Where he saw disintegration, we see pluralism. Where he saw the destructive influence of egotism, we see the celebration of individual liberty. The rest of this book is about the very real possibility that Weaver's sight was virtually 2020, while that of many Westerners verges on blindness. To see this, we must look at what afflicts us culturally, or at least what many people say is our malady. Like a doctor who arrives in the middle of an operation that should be succeeding but is failing, we need to reevaluate the patient's condition to see if a misdiagnosis is contributing to his slow demise. All right, so now it's time for some commentary on this opening chapter. Uh, again, we're discussing William Watkins' 1996 book called The New Absolutes. Now, I will re reiterate this again, that I think it would be helpful to have a little bit of an understanding of apologetics, um, uh, Christian apologetics, epistemology, uh, how we know what we can know, a little bit of philosophy in there. Uh, that is That, to me, made reading this book really fascinating. And just a little backstory, if you're someone new to all of that, you've maybe done kind of nothing, so you don't even know what I'm talking about. Um, apologetics is the defense of the faith. So uh, how can we defend the Christian faith and the Christian worldview? And I will say that my introduction to all of this began not, not that long ago, four years ago, maybe, uh, no, less than that, three years ago. So I was at a church and was really fortunate to have... Um, a young pastor, Colin Brooks, who sort of introduced, introduced the church to apologetics through a Wednesday night class that met weekly. And so we'd, we'd get together 90 minutes a week, and he did made some really great lectures. He has a, a really amazing skill at making, um, bringing complex things to the, uh, the, the common man, I, I guess I would say, uh, and explaining uh, theology to the common person. He, he does a really good job of doing that, but not compromising theological truth or doctrine in the process. So I really am appreciative of Colin's introduction to some of these these topics. And then for me, uh, I, I went and just kind of have dug, dug farther. So uh, oftentimes in my training, the hours that I spend riding my bike or skiing or running, I, I almost am always listening to... Um, uh, podcasts, and it's not always sports podcasts. Although I do do that occasionally, or or news news related things. Um, I, I try to listen to about sixty to seventy five percent 
of uh, uh, Christian theological doctrine related uh, podcasts. And I would say most of that is Dividing Line with James White. And I would recommend for those of you who want uh, a theologically sound take on current events, but also the uh, frequent dialogue, debate over over biblical issues, theology topics. Uh, White is excellent for that. Uh, and recently, he's been uh, he he's been doing a lot more shows that are related to uh, current events. But he always is is rooting things in the Bible and is very very bent on on holding holding scripture at a very high level scripture authority sola scriptura uh the the sole rule of faith for the church and for us as christians is the bible and and so he is he, and he, he's also been really gifted with this since a young age memorizing the bible and just uh he knows the scriptures really well uh, and he has uh, uh education in greek and hebrew so he's just kind of that that solid source for for anything uh as it relates to the bible because he's he's kind of the total package he's a debater he's a theologian he's a professor and um so and a philosopher too although some people would say he's probably not as good at philosophy but i would kind of argue that you know theology is determining your philosophy so the fact that he's got that first base covered really really well probably better than anyone um even if his philosophy is quote weak it's probably still at least accurate or coming from an accurate place. Anyway, so I listen to a lot of James White. He's been kind of a source of growth, I would say, and a lot of his books have been as well. Um, but in terms of learning about apologetics, I got this introduction right from a person I could, who knew a lot more than me, knew a lot of sources and could point me in different sources, did other books to read, but he sort of gave me this foundational, this is what it is. And that I kind of made a mistake probably of going right to like the two extremes of big people in the, in the Christian apologetic world, presuppositional world anyway. And I, I started reading Van Til directly, which was really complex and hard to read. And, 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 um, you know, it, it was, it was difficult to read. Uh, t- it takes 25 minutes to read two or three pages of his stuff. And then you're still kind of left wondering what's going on, even though it, it is very, it's very clear. It's this paradox because it's, it's, it's very, uh, you can tell that what he's saying makes sense, but it just takes a long time to digest each thought. So I read some of Van Til, struggled through that, didn't really totally grasp all of it. And then I went kind of back, to, swung completely the other way and, and started watching Cy Ten Bruggenkate, some of his videos, How to Answer the Fool, and um, some of his resources, ProofThatGodExists.com. And, and I would recommend Cy Ten as someone maybe, uh, I, maybe starting out there. He, he's really truly someone who has brought... Um, apologetics and presuppositional apologetics to the common crowd, and he is kind of a commoner. So he's he himself. You can see if you watch his videos, he's gone from being really kind of almost brash and to to really quite knowledgeable. You can tell he is he is passionate about apologetics and has studied and read more of Van Til and Greg Bonson and some of these great uh, reformers. So he knows his stuff for sure. But but his approach to apologetics is is very approachable for for regular people so anyway i started with van till went back to Cy 10 and then somewhere in the in the middle there have found someone who can kind of explain both greg bonson who is no longer with us but greg bonson is probably the greatest debater and, and perhaps the greatest theologian that's ever lived you could argue um and the the quintessential greg bonson debate is 
uh, a debate with Gordon Stein over the existence of God. It's about a two-hour YouTube uh, video from the 80s, I think. Audio is not super great. So I have tried to listen to it a few times um, on some roller skis, and it hasn't really worked out. But the, we had the, the clip at the beginning of the show that was kind of showing that. So anyway, before we kind of talk about Watkins and and uh, this this opening chapter, I just want to make it clear that some of these things that I'm going to be bringing up do require a little bit of that baseline knowledge, and and I am nowhere near being able to answer all the questions, so I might screw up in, in how I'm explaining things, but I, I've been very consistent in trying to grow in my knowledge of um, uh, theology, doctrine, and, and apologetics. I think those, are, those things are very important, uh, maybe the most important things in terms of unifying us as Christians, to be honest. Uh, if you don't really know what you believe, then how can you believe it? You know. Uh, so anyway, uh, I would just encourage you to look for resources and and spend some time listening, watching, or reading. Uh, we live in a world where information is really readily available, so there's not really a, a, an excuse, honestly, for um, almost anyone to to not be at least striving to gain in their knowledge of God and knowledge of the truth. Uh, sermonaudio.com is great. It's all free. You can download it, listen to it in your commute, um, on your own time. If you have bad internet, like you live in the mountains like I do, and you got to pre-download everything for the rest of the day. Uh, so you can do that. Apology at Church actually has an app I just downloaded. So that's more live. Apology at Church based out of Phoenix. That's actually the church that now James White is, is part of. So, uh, But they grew out of something else. And Jeff Durbin is their, um, their kind of lead pastor, I think. But anyway, Apology at Church has iHeart sermons. Um, uh, Apology, Alpha and Omega Ministries is good. But anything written by Greg Bonson is is excellent. If you look up, and Greg Bonson explains Van Til. So if you're someone who's like, well, you said Van Til was kind of the man, but he's kind of too complicated, uh, go back and read some of Greg Bonson. And that's kind of next on my list to do, to be honest. And in my apologetic walk, I guess, growth is to order some more Greg Bonson books. I'm a little busy now because I just got a bunch of Jason Lyle uh, Christian Science Institute stuff, which is, he deals with logic, science, and reasoning too. Um, and he's actually, he actually lives in Colorado Springs, so maybe I should try and meet up with him. I, I still got to try and meet up with James White on like a bike ride. He, he's an avid cyclist. I mean, more intense than I am by a lot. And that's kind of his only thing on a Phoenix, but I think it'd be so cool. One of my life goals go on like, I don't know, some bikes on mountain pass with James White or I, I, if, if James White ever hears this, I just am throwing it out there and I know he wants to get some high altitude training and he needs to get out of the oppressive heat of Phoenix. He, he is welcome to come and, um, stay with, with Christy and I, and we'll give him free lodging and I can show him some excellent bike routes where he will not be, uh, bothered by, by traffic or anything or, or any, or any, uh, any, anything. So, Okay. There's, there's, there was the long-winded way of saying, get in there, dig in there, learn some of this base stuff, presuppositional apologetics, and how you can know what your worldview is. Basically, the idea there is we all have a worldview, and um, there's only one worldview that is consistent, and it's the one that it, it, whose foundation is the, is the only self-authenticating uh, ultimate authority, which is the Bible. It's God, right? The same thing. So... Uh, we walk around here, we, we basically have two types of people living in the world today. And those are people who believe that uh, the Bible is true and bow the knee to that and, and accept the Bible as their ultimate authority and those that don't. And 
understanding that and understanding, I guess, logically and philosophically how that works makes reading a book like this really fascinating uh, because you see the manifestations of that rejection of God just all over the place. And Watkins does all the work of digging up all this data, uh, historical facts. He cites so many different texts and, and events. Um, and he does all that work for you. And then if you have that knowledge of, well, yeah, that's inevitable, right? Romans one, we, God has let them go. Basically he's let the world go to their own desires and this is what happens. And so that was kind of the theme running through my head as I, I read through this book, which again was written in 1996. Like it's not even, uh, up to date quote, but you know, notice in that opening chapter, he even, he references someone from what was it 40 or 50 years ago, kind of laying out, Hey, this is what's going to happen. And Watkins basically says, look at this guy, 2020 vision, right? Like he was right on spot on. And I'm looking kind of at Watkins and going, Oh, Watkins, Watkins is another guy who, you know, not prophesying it, but sort of showing us where we're headed. And now in 2020, we really see where we're headed to. All right, so what do we have here in this in this first chapter? Some keys that I think are worth worth bringing up again. First of all, this notion that most people in academia, students, people in the world in general, they believe that truth is something that is relative. Uh, which I think this is just crazy. I I actually posed this question to a bunch of college freshmen in a first year class once. I just I I, I can't remember how exactly I did it, but I basically presented this. Right? Is there such a thing as uh, relative truth, or um, do you believe truth is relative? Oh, maybe I even said, like, is there such a thing as absolute truth? Anyway, most of the class said no, and only one person, and and she was an adult, 40 years old, maybe a, a, a parent, um, much more mature in many other areas of the class, but said, well, of course, there, there is such a thing as absolute truth. By definition, truth has to be absolute. Truth can't be relative. It's, it's in accordance with reality. That is the definition of truth. And so the Christian apologist is going to say, right, it's anything that is in accordance with the mind of God. But that's also this, to say the same thing, anything that is in, is in accordance with reality. Um, and so it's just a it's like a contradiction in of itself to say that truth it could possibly not be absolute. It, that's the definition of truth. It requires a standard just by definition. It requires a right and a wrong. It's not false. Uh, it requires a line that's being drawn into the sand. So the fact that, you know, most people are under the impression that there would be no such thing as absolute truth. It's like, that's basically saying there's no such thing as reality, which I guess there's probably some, you know, philosophies where like that would be the logical conclusion. But m most people are not in agreement with that. If you said, well, there is such a thing as reality, they would say that, of course, there is. So that which comports with reality is, is truth. Now, not everyone is going to, I guess, know reality because to have something that's comporting with reality means you are in accordance with a biblical standard within the mind of the mind of God as, as, a, as according to a biblical standard. So there are lots of people who are living in reality, but not acknowledging reality. And that's kind of why we have that whole point of this show, right? Reality isn't really right, my zinger. Reality isn't waiting for you to bow the knee. It doesn't need you to bow the knee to be reality. It doesn't need you to bow the knee to be authoritative. 
so I just thought that was kind of <laughs> to open up the book like that. Like, hey, basically everyone around here doesn't think the truth even exists. But by saying that, it's just it's contradictory, right? And that goes on to his next line where he he's talking with his friend and this contradictory statement that he says, it's absolutely true that no truths are absolute, right? Um, that's basically what Ed says. And that's an absolutist statement, right? There, there, there really can be no such thing as relativism. And that's a, that's an opening, uh, axiom from this book is he's going to show that there's, there can't even be a thing, such a thing as relativism. And it's proven by that statement, you know, um, cause you're making an absolutist statement by saying that there's no absolute truths. So that in and of itself is not relativism. So uh, either God is the determiner of truth, the creator, or the individual is the determiner of truth. And I would say that's the creation. So either the creator is sitting on the throne or ultimately his creation is sitting on the throne or trying to sit on the throne. That's what Watkins is saying there uh, in his opening uh, this introduction as well is, you know, saying uh, what was his exact lines here about ultimately people have to become the determiner of truth. Let's see what he said here. So I don't, uh, yeah. Self must put itself in the place of deity and become not the discoverer of truth, but the determiner of truth. That's if relativism is true. Uh, so he's kind of, you know, I think essentially what, what's being said there is there are only these two types of people in the world, right? Those who reject God and those who bow the knee to God. In each of these worlds is an absolutist world. Each of these worldviews has necessary and logical conclusions. And the conclusions of the worldview where God, the creator, is on the throne are going to comport with reality because the fact of the matter is we're living in God's world, whether we, whether we acknowledge that or not. So that, that's something I think that's very powerful for the Christian to know as they get into discussions with people or as they're just thinking about things is to know that we're living in God's world. And even the people who aren't acknowledging this, but are still borrowing from God's worldview to use laws of logic, to use math, reasoning, all those abilities, they're they're still, they are just borrowing that. And they're coming to different conclusions, not because the uh, the Christian conclusion is wrong or it's just an opinion or it's subjective. They're, they're coming to different conclusions because ultimately the rottenness of their heart, the depravity of their soul, as, as described in Romans 1, they are suppressing the truth that they know is true. Uh, let, me, let me just read uh, Romans 1. This is starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Okay, verses 18 to 23 should be just like required memorization for for sure for every Christian apologist, anyone who's planning on engaging in these topics. But everyone should just know this. This is like such foundational, uh, it's foundational theology that's so influential to our philosophy, really, because um, 
we now we now can separate these all these philosophies, right? The the man-centered philosophy versus the God-centered philosophy. Uh, that's our distinction. And the man-centered philosophies might all have a bunch of different names and look really different, but they, they all boil down to who's sitting on the throne, who's determining truth. Is it the one who actually created truth and everything that comes from their mouth is truth because it's coming from their mouth? Or is it the creation trying to go, yeah, I actually am capable of knowing right from wrong. Uh, fully. And, and that's what, that's what it boils down to. And these, these two worldviews do have, like I said, necessary and logical conclusions. Uh, Unfortunately, or actually, fortunately, most people who are rejecting God and living in rebellion of him philosophically and morally and theologically and everything, they are not living out the logical conclusions to their worldview yet. And I say yet because the general deterioration of society is is we're seeing this this play out that people are actually starting to live out the logical conclusions of their rebellious worldview, rebellion to their creator, rebellion to his natural way of the, the natural order. But but generally speaking, most people don't. Most people are thinking um, they they even though they believe that that everything ultimately came from, from fizz and chemicals, that they can still have meaningful thoughts and emotions. And so even though those things are inconsistent, uh, that, that, that the, the thoughts of our brain ultimately were evolved from, from brain, and it's just brain fizz up there, right? It's just fizzing around that uh, we could have logical, rational, meaningful, emotional uh, conversations, thoughts, all that stuff. One of those is true, and, and they, they're not consistent together, but most people, they, they live with that. And, and or they, if even though things are random and there is no God, we still see lots of people who do morally, quote, good things by a biblical standard even. Uh, they're helping people. They're helping the poor. They're loving. They're showing grace and mercy. We, we see that all the time. And, and that's just, quite frankly, it's people being inconsistent with their worldview. They can't account for why they would even do that consistently. They, they, that doesn't mean they can't give you a reason that they're doing it or even attempt to say, well, of, co- of course we can know what's right and wrong because X, Y, Z. There, as a lot of people have, uh, I shouldn't say a lot. Some people actually, if you ask them that, they wouldn't even know what to say. You know, they just kind of look at you like, are you crazy? Like we all know what's right and wrong, which it, again, that was built into our moral fabric. Like the Christian can even say, well, of course you do. Of course you know what's right and wrong. Like that was something given to us at conception, even some awareness of that. Uh, but <laughs> regardless of that, uh, basically, uh, mo- most people will give an answer that that is not foundationally consistent. They can't they can account for it, and it and that's really where the the sword of apologetics can come in, right? If you have these conversations with people, the effectiveness of apologetics is showing them the inconsistency of their worldview, in hopes that then they come to this breaking point of going. Uh, repent and submit to God, the God you know exists, the God that is the Creator, the one true God, and. Um, I'm still kind of like searching for this, where's the ultimate effectiveness of apologetics and the consistency there? Because if Romans 1 is really right too, and they're in rebellion to God, at some point, even if we show them logically uh, that that their worldview isn't consistent, right, and we get them to this breaking point and they realize it, their hearts are, if they're far, far enough in rebellion, are, are they really going to turn to God? If it's really ultimately a heart issue anyway, if it's that they hate God, then, then what difference does it make if we expose the folly, right, of of the fool and for what it is? So I think 
I guess there's a biblical command in Psalms, right? Or no, Proverbs, Psalms, the, the one where it has the, contra- it's Proverbs, the contradictory statement, quote, contradictory right next to each other, where it says to um, uh, answer the fool according to his folly. And then to not answer, it says to not answer the fool. Don't answer the fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And then the next verse is answer the fool, right? Um, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And I, I think that that's the one thing I hold on to is there's this command to go out there and use discernment, I guess, and wisdom to know, to expose the fool for, for his folly. And that's a command. And, and I guess we trust the Holy Spirit to work an act of regeneration. Some people are going to, when you expose them, I suppose that's, that's the breaking point is where regeneration can occur and they repent and they, they go, you are God and, and I am not. So, but, but, but that whole, that whole struggle, I think with the apologetic method is still something I'm trying to learn about. And I think that would determine in some degrees our, our apologetic method. Are you going to be a presuppositionalist or, or traditionalist or, or whatever? And, um, that's something I'm still kind of, I think it's fascinating to learn about because they have to be consistent with theology. Ultimately theology doctrine, the Bible is that ultimate standard. So your apologetic method should be built off of those truths. And, um, and then philosophy is built, um, kind of in, inside of that, not inside of theology, but, but it's, um, it's built maybe inside of your apologetic as a result of your theology. Uh, but anyway, we see these, the, this contradiction right away take place, right? There's, there's these two groups. Who's the determiner of truth? Is it God or is it man? And, and then uh, Watkins kind of goes on and he says, so, uh, you know, he sets, sets the stage, so to speak, I guess. And, and, and what I mean by that is for a long time, our country really was living out the logical consequences of a Judeo-Christian worldview. Meaning, uh, you know, many of these social structures, the rules, morals, we had them rooted in a biblical foundation and understanding. And so they, they were consistent within that worldview. Uh, but they're not consistent in a man-centered worldview, ultimately. And so what I would kind of argue um, is essentially over time, people have become aware, like, wait a minute, why is it like this? But, and, 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 and in their rebellion to God, right, the refusal to bow the knee to God has made them challenge these absolutes, uh, using the word that Watkins would say, right? But I would just say the logical consequences of the Christian worldview. It's caused them to challenge those logical consequences. No, marriage doesn't need to be like this. No, this is what sex is. No, this is, uh, this is how we feel about X, Y, Z, education, abortion, all that stuff, right? They, they've challenged that, and, and rightly so, from just a logical consequence, because they've rejected their creator. And so now he lays out the work, right, of, of kind of putting that on full display, and so then he gets to his thesis, relativism. And I guess, you know, it'd be interesting to really know the history of this. This is where, in my opinion, reading through this book, you know, he's got this, this idea that, look, we used to be Judeo-Christian, but we've slid away from that. And I guess he provides plenty of evidence for that. And I don't know if you could really say it's like 
biased. It's it's this is what's happening and this is his interpretation of it. He's not making stuff up. And it is insanely appalling, even in 1995. It's some of the stuff that I learned from this book that has happened or, or was going on, I just... I, 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 there was a couple of chapters in here that were actually hard for me to physically read. I felt sick to my stomach after reading um, a couple of these chapters. Uh, some of the later ones, uh, really disturbing, uh, really, really disturbing. But I guess it'd be kind of interesting to know for me more like what was the actual beginning of the of the country? Why did we end up basing everything in this Judeo-Christian worldview? And, and the easy answer is, well, everyone was, you know, Protestant Christians like they they actually were reformed. They were they were actually probably really good reformed uh, Christians. And so it makes sense, right, that they came together. But but just think about that process of doing that coming together after winning independence and sitting down with a bunch of leaders and and somehow agreeing to set up a government where the ultimate authority was scripture, ultimately, right? You just almost wonder if like some of those founding fathers were really brilliant theologians and they just, they figured out how to, how to convince the people around them that like, look, this is going to be the best way to set up a government. And I, I know that, the, that you don't believe in the same God, maybe as I do, or even believe in a God at all, but we need to do it this way because it will work. <laughs> was that the conversation or was it a bunch of like Christians at a Bible study going, well, I, obviously we need to like set up and obviously people have inalienable rights because of the Bible and, and you know, were they just sitting in agreement? I, I think that's kind of something interesting to think about. And I'm not sure even if there are sources where we could really truly know that, but some of the quotes from the founding fathers could, would really indicate that um, it could be that there were some really strong Christians, really good biblically uh, solid Christians in, in the rooms founding our country. And we know that like some people, Thomas Jefferson, I think was a deist, but what probably wasn't a Christian at all. And, you know, even he kind of was like, yeah, this is probably how it should go, you know? And that's kind of what makes me think that there, there maybe was some of that discussion and dialogue back and forth. Like, obviously they would have had to know that, look, there's, there's going to be people in this country that don't bow the knee to God, the one true God. And we need to, we need to create a government and a system, uh, society where they're going to be okay, because it's, it's not, it hasn't worked in history. You can't like force people to be a certain religion. And, and that's, I think where things break down because the command of the old Testament, God is like demands, demands loyalty and worship from the nation of Israel. And, and, and in historically speaking, when a nation rejects God, then, then they are destroyed. It's just like this really easy, basic consequence. And so if you are a nation that is in full submission to God, whatever that means, every single citizen, are there one, is there one person that's not right? Like, and that's, that's something that the part of the equation that is, is a little confusing to me, but, but essentially, right? Like they're going to be okay. And so when you look at America, where does that, where does that stack up? Like, were they going, oh gosh, we know that the Bible says if we don't worship God as the one true God, our country is going to fall apart. So we need to somehow figure out how to do that, but we can't like legislate force people to worship God because that's not how it works either. So I don't know. I just kind of think that's interesting. Do they know that Knowing that, we let's try and create the form of government that is going to, for the longest time, keep people worshiping God. Because when, when we when we say like, while well, our nation was founded on Judeo Christian values, 
to me, all that means is someone really, you know, at the beginning, the foundation was the the logical consequences of our worldview are going to be based on the Bible because they're consistent. That's why. Like we can account for inalienable rights for all people. We can account for liberty. We can account for things that we want, things that most people want. We can account for them given the Christian worldview. And that has some meaning. That does not mean that every single person was a Christian or that when the bad things in history happened, it was a result of a Christian worldview. That, 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 that's not true. It's a result of sinful men doing, doing awful things. It, it doesn't mean that the Bible, well, since America was founded on Christian worldviews, the Bible must, must really enjoy or, or must promote X, Y, Z and really bad things, right? Like inhumane treatment of, of people of certain colors. And you just go on and on about the awful things that have happened in our country. But what, it, but what it could mean is that, hey, the Constitution was man's best attempt to make a governing authority that was consistent with the biblical worldview. Uh, and that is kind of fascinating. And it, it's, to me, makes America one of the, one of the most unique nations ever out there, right? Because we, we, here, we, here we go. We tried to do it the biblical way in some ways. But, of course, Romans, you know, people are rejecting the God they know to exist. And what, what happens as a result of that? Well, Romans keeps, it goes on, right? Because, because of this, they exchanged, um, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they're, they're not worshiping God, right? They're worshiping these other things. And therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Oh, that, that just still gets me. Inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, get ready for this. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So I'm not going to get into specifics here. There's a lot of people who've done like incredible work dissecting these, the importance of each of these verses here in 24 through the end. But I will say there's kind of this, uh, it seems to be a progression, right? They suppress the truth. They, they, in suppressing the truth, reject the God they know to exist. And then they start worshiping other things. And because of this evil, God gives them up. And he says, all right, we're just going to, we're going to let this play out basically, you know, run it to the logical conclusion. And the result of that is, is verses 26 through 32 and all the descriptions they give up. They're, they're rejecting so many things that are, um, uh, contrary to nature, right? Contrary to reality, contrary to what is in accordance with reality. And that's where the verse comes up, right? The, the example of um, a gender and homosexuality here in verse 26 through 27, which is, is sometimes pointed to by people who are saying, oh, see, look, the Bible doesn't, doesn't say homosexuality 
is okay. It says, it says homosexuality is a sin. And, and I agree it does, right? But it's, it's like way more powerful than that. It's saying it's not just a sin. It is the result of a rejection of God and God giving them up to the extent that they're rejecting things that are just absolutely contrary to nature, to reality. The, even women are consumed with passion for one another. They, the, you know, the the gravity of that statement is really lost on us. But back then, right, women uh, the 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 big deal for uh, for a woman is to have birth. So, like, that's even more of a statement that it says uh, there in verse twenty seven. So, uh, but then, yeah, and then what's what's the result of this? They become disobedient. They're inventors of evil. They're coming up with ways to be evil and to be in rebellion to God. And then finally, that next stage is, and they give approval to those who practice them. I believe this is where we are now at. We, we there, this book is going to, is going to open, open up our eyes to like, there were people giving approval to these horrible things that are so anti-Bible and anti-God's law, anti-God's moral code and who he is. There, there's people throughout history who have been giving approval to to those who invent these ways of evil but in 2020 the chorus is just that much louder i i i believe the the chorus of approval for doing things that are are directly in in rebellion to god is very loud it's a very easy choir to join <laughs> uh from there's my music education uh statement there okay so Let's see. Are there some other other points here? So he, he brings up his thesis, right? Relative is false, impossible to embrace. It's not held in the West or the world at large. Many people claim to be relativists, but they are not. So then, yeah, right, because it's logically impossible. We become an over this. To not have a standard or an ultimate authority. You just simply can't. Everyone has to have an ultimate authority. Uh, it's, it's, and that's understood. It's briefly explained here, but again, it's really better understood when you kind of do some studying of epistemology, philosophy, uh, apologetic method, worldviews. Um, let's see, thesis two then. America has a growing acceptance of a new set of alleged truths. Yes. And, uh, that's kind of what we just went through now. So those are the two, the two key points of his text. And something I think this book, having read through it now, we're going to go through it again, but something I, I don't think he totally addresses is how we as Christians could apologetically expose these false worldviews by showing them to be inconsistent. He doesn't really lay out the, the, the simple statement, even saying like the proof of the Christian worldview is that without it, we can't make sense of the world we live in today, right? Like that's the, that's the proof of the Christian worldview is you need it to make sense of reality and explaining that, um, again, that, 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 that whole idea is you can't really explain that to a fool, right? Like they're not the, the fool, the one who has rejected God with his heart, that doesn't make sense to him. And it's not going to make sense to him. Um, but, and even though that point isn't driven home explicitly, it is baked into the fabric of this, this text everywhere. So most of the comments I bring up here in this discussion, it'll be pointing back to some of that, those ideas. And, and now think of further reflection on this, the, the point of this text maybe wasn't for that. Um, I think it's, it's something I have a hard time not dwelling on if I was writing a book like this, right. Where I'm kind of saying, look at the world used to be like this. And now it's like this, like, how could you not address the reason for that, you know, based out of Romans one. Uh, but, but there's, that's why I didn't write this book and it didn't end up being 4,000 pages. It's concise and it's fun to read because, because he didn't do that. Um, 
so the reality, Romans 1, 22 through 32, I, I read that to you here. So that's, that's kind of closing up that, the text here. Um, oh, how about this quote? This is from page 19. This one really stuck to me too. Um, for four centuries, every man has been not only his own priest, but his own professor of ethics. And the consequence is an anarchy which threatens even that minimum consensus of value necessary to the political state. From his standpoint in history, he could tell that modern society was self-destructing. To those who thought he was wrong, he answered, if you seek the monument to our folly, look about you. That was uh, the quote from, from Richard Weaver, the guy who was kind of declaring like, you know, almost prophesying all these crazy things to happen. I just thought that stood out. Uh, it, it stood out to me, right? For four centuries, every man has been not only his own priest, but his own professor. That kind of is also another way of saying they've been the own, their own determiner and, and, uh, and sitting on the throne and then giving themselves the information that is required to keep them there. Uh, and what's the consequence? Anarchy. And, and what is the result? It's threatening even the minimum consensus of value necessary to the political state. In other words, the result is that there's going to be chaos. Like, we're not going to be able to, oh, let's reject God. Let's all reject God together and have this, this relativism. Well, the result of that is, is chaos. Like, no one's going to come to any consensus, even on the minimum things. And, and that's, that's frightening. It doesn't, it doesn't seem possible, but I, that, that will be the, the ultimate logical consequence will be like even basic things, the right to life will, will, will come under siege. And and that's, as I say that, right, like you're just thinking right now, like (laughs) we have it guised or disguised in a, in a way that, that doesn't sound like that. But if you broke it down, we, we've, we are already there where we're not in agreement with something as basic as the right to life. The, the minimum consensus of value, it's already gone. And the result, why, why is that? It's because every person is their own priest and professor of their ethic. So I, I thought that quote was, was haunting, you know, to be, to be honest. All right. Uh, that is the end of uh, chapter one and the discussions. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, this first episode of Skiologians. Stay tuned. We'll do chapter two next time. Uh, see you later.